He woke up before the sun crossed the horizon. He knows it's early, that he has no need to be up right now. He can't contain his excitement. He has slept in a different place for the first time in years. His new sight pushed him to find adventures in any small way he could. Now he wanted more. He wants to experience the world. But I've never left the temple. My stomach turns whenever I get close to the threshold. My world is here. The rabbi stayed in Bethany last night. It's only a short walk south and east. He'll probably show up at any moment. I can't wait that long, though. He walks with purpose to the same entrance the rabbi used to, when leaving last night. But the closer he gets, the slower he walks. Finally, he is standing in the opening, staring out at the courtyard. The wind gently laps at his clothes. Rags, really. He puts one foot outside. He can't remember the last time he even left the inner temple. He slowly walks along the edge of the courtyard, maintaining his usual invisibility. He began to feel the hum of the streets of Jerusalem crest against his skin. The smells were overpowering. He picks up speed as he sees the entrance of the courtyard. Beyond is the unfamiliar. Beyond is the new life. The sun barely shows above the walls of the city, the air crisp and fresh compared to the temple's stale air, heavy with incense. The world moves too fast for his eyes to take it all in. He slows and focuses on the colors of the spices in the fabrics, the dull tan of the walls, the shimmery reflection of the temple gold on the streets. As his gaze wanders, he sees a group of men approach. Panic closes around him, coats his tongue with its familiar metallic taste. It's the rabbi and his followers. I must have been walking slower than I imagined. Wait, how far have I walked? His understanding of time and space has been fundamentally changed by sight, and now he was completely at a loss. He had started with purpose to meet the rabbi, but something in the way they talk, in the way they walk, the ease, the pace, the laughter, he knows he'd only be a burden. He's forgotten he's supposed to be invisible. He looks around him to see where he could hide. A bush, perfect. As the men pass by, he trains his ear on their voices. They must be planning another busy day at the temple. Peter, what was the biggest haul you ever had? 101 net, that was a good day. Fishing? They talk fishing? The rest too, just small talk, just like at the temple. The rabbi stopped. He looks around. He must see me. The man's stomach drops. I'm hungry. Should we eat? A chorus of yeses answers the rabbi. The rabbi keeps looking around. He walks over to a tree. Figs. Perfect. The rabbi inspects the tree closely. No fruit. May you never bear fruit again. The rabbi says this loudly. Loudly enough for anyone close by to hear. The man also couldn't help but notice the rabbi glance over his shoulder in his direction. The man focused all his newfound energy of sight on the tree. Suddenly, the edges of the leaves begin to brown and wither, then fall. The trunk dries and cracks. The man and the rabbi's followers all collectively gasp in shock. The rabbi simply smiles and continues on his way to the city. Remember, this is all happening around Passover, probably late March, early April, so it's still early in the season for fig trees to bear fruit. 
However, this tree is already covered in leaves. It appears to be way ahead of schedule from a distance. It looks like a healthy, thriving tree. But up close, it's a whole different story. You realize it's only an illusion. It may look good from afar, but it's actually far from good. And as Jesus is on his way to the temple for this fateful day, he takes the time to stop and point this out. And that is what this episode is all about. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. This season, one man learns the key to life isn't power or privilege, but a new way of seeing the world. The man felt the wind on his clothes before he realized he had made his decision. He could make it back to the temple before them if he ran hard enough. They took their time, and the size of the group would naturally slow them down. His lungs burned as he recrossed the threshold of the temple gates. The air smelled different. He couldn't break the old habit of sensing the way the day will go in the air. It's thicker, strange. The chief priests and the elders are gathered where they usually are, in the corner nearest the inner sanctum. But something is different. They're not sitting. They pace and glance at the doorway every so often. The men also are wearing their ceremonial garments. They look ready for a serious encounter. One of the priests is set far apart from the rest. He looks like he's preparing for a battle. While not the most powerful man in the temple, he's made sure everyone knows who he is. Not only is he physically imposing, a full head taller than the most, The way he carries his body lets all know that he is not to be trifled with. All eyes suddenly shift to the east. The rabbi, standing in the threshold. The man realizes that he's back in his corner. He watches as everyone else watches, their eyes moving back and forth between rabbi and the chief priest. About 1,500 years before this day, God worked through Moses to bring his people out of slavery and into freedom. During their journey, they set up a place for God to dwell and called it the tabernacle. Now, of course, God is everywhere, and this tabernacle was really just a glorified tent. But as they wandered through the wilderness, it gave the Israelites a way of understanding a God who was always with them. And then about 500 years later, the Israelites were so well established in Jerusalem that it was time for something more long term. This man named Solomon comes on the scene and sets out to construct a permanent version of the tabernacle. We call it the temple. Same idea as the tents, just bigger, more beautiful, and way more expensive. But since God was thought to dwell there, much of the religious activity of the day were done in its courts. But of course, God is not confined to a tent or a building. He's way bigger than that. So I love that Jesus picks the temple as the central location for these conversations with all the religious leaders of the day. A building where religious folks believe God dwells is the perfect spot to set up shop and deconstruct the box we all try to put God in. The two men step toward each other. The chief priest strides with purpose. The rabbi saunters with a smile. Here's what we're all wondering, the chief priest booms. 
By what authority are you doing these things, healing the blind and the lame? How do you do it, and by whose authority? The air disappears. The temperature drops. They are trying to trap him. They are trying to turn the people against him. That must be what their goal is. No one is interested in what they are doing any longer. They've all turned to the two men standing in the middle of the temple. All eyes focus on the rabbi. He stares at the chief priest. I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things, the rabbi states flatly. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? The chief priest pauses, surprised by the question. Everyone gasps. No one has ever challenged him before. Not like this. A question for a question. The man watches the priest closely. He can see the subtle shifts in his feet, the glisten of sweat forming on his brow. The priest has shifted back away from the rabbi. The rabbi simply looks at him quizzically. The man turns towards the other priests. They are murmuring and huddling in the corner. He then looks towards the followers of the rabbi. They are smiling and looking at each other with knowing looks. The rabbi must have done something like this before. The temple collectively holds its breath. Jesus was always challenging narratives. He'd walk into the temple and say things like, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. That's a radical thing to say, the type of thing that'll get someone killed because the temple took 46 years to build and it's the sacred space so you can't say things like that. The question is why? Why challenge narratives like this? Well, several reasons, but back to Einstein's quote, if you can't fix a problem with the same type of thinking that created the problem, that means one of the biggest enemies of progress is expecting simple one-word answers to profound questions. Hey, hey Jesus, tell us in one word by what authority you're doing all of these things. Jesus could tell him. The problem is there was a whole lot more going on just beneath the surface. And for as long as these leaders expected simple thinking to fix complex problems, they weren't going to get anywhere. So Jesus does what he does best. He takes a simple question and he starts digging. The chief priest walks slowly back to the others. The man watches from his corner. They huddle together. Occasionally, one voice carries over the other. They don't know the answer yet, he thinks. The chief priests who confronted the rabbi seems disengaged. He doesn't seem remotely interested in figuring out the answer to the rabbi's question. We should say from heaven, one priest suggests, except we didn't believe him. So if we claim his authority from heaven, then we admit we doubted God. He would certainly follow up by asking why we didn't believe. A round of murmurs. Then his authorities of human origin. We can't say that either, the chief priest says, frustration barely contained. Don't you see these people? They say he is a prophet. They love him and his miracles. If we say it's human authority, they will turn on us. The men continue to discuss, but the chief priest stares off into the distance. He slowly looks around and finally, his eyes land on the rabbi teaching. The man in the corner takes all this in. Suddenly, the chief priest moves forward. 
His walk is slow, hesitant, joyless. The two men meet again. The chief priest. We don't know. The rabbi. Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He turns without hesitation and continues teaching the people. The chief priest merely stands where the rabbi left him. We don't know much about this chief priest. In both a frustrating and brilliant move, the Bible gives us minimal backstory about just about every character in these stories. Over the years, rabbis have understood why this is. Details are left out of stories because our job is to dance with them, which means their purpose is less about giving us concrete answers and more about creating a dance floor. If you read these chapters all the way through, you'll notice that several times Jesus just breaks into a story, a a parable, and then he'll just leave it there. So if you're a disciple of a rabbi, your job is to learn to do the same thing. Take this chief priest, for example. He only appears for a few quick moments in the Jesus story, but he was a human being who lived an entire life, and there is a backstory to every single one of his behaviors. What is that backstory? Well, again, we don't know, but Here's a guess. The rabbi continues to teach. He begins to tell the people the story of a man with two sons. The man in the corner listens intently to the man who bested the chief priest. In the story, one of the sons tells his father he would not go to the vineyard to work, but goes anyway. The other son says he will go to the vineyard, but does not go. What a strange story, the man thinks to himself. He closes his eyes. He thinks better with them closed. Less distractions. As his eyes close, he remembers an equally strange scene from a few years ago. It was a conversation between the chief priest and his trusted official. The day before Yom Kippur, the last day before the solemn fast, 10 days of repentance. You and Caiaphas have been working closely lately, haven't you? The official asks. Yes, it has been exciting, the chief priest responds. But I'm struggling today. Why, it's almost here. Your hard work is about to pay off. Yes, yes, but then it's over. Then Caiaphas will go back to his residence and retreat from working with me. I won't have his ear. I won't be able to influence anything here. He gestures wildly to the temple. Is that all? All? Yes, that's all. What of our work? No one sees all the work we put in until the high holidays. And even then, Caiaphas takes the lion's share of the credit. What is the point of all this if we don't get some affirmation for our hard work each day? The man opens his eyes. The man had heard this conversation. Clearly, the chief priest felt unappreciated. Not valued. He remembers at the time feeling the tiniest bit of compassion for him. Now, the man looks over at the chief priest and realizes for the first time that he was just as human as himself. Hopefully you're starting to see how this season works. We're watching this all play out from the perspective of a man who has spent his entire life begging in the temple as a blind man, which means although he hasn't had sight, Until yesterday when Jesus healed him, he has been around listening to everything, 
which means he is a wealth of information. He has all sorts of memories about these religious leaders, including the flashback we just heard about the chief priest and his insecurity. It feels good to point out other people's flaws, probably because at some level, although we'd never admit it or say it this way, we still think God is grading us on a curve which means other people's success is a threat to us and their failures actually push us forward in the standings. So it's easier on our brains to take the gospel story and create two categories, good and bad. That way we can just put Jesus in the good category and all the other religious leaders in the bad one. The problem is the Bible is way more profound, provocative, and beautiful than that. And when we try to put everyone else in the bad category, we're missing so much beauty and mystery waiting to be discovered just beneath the surface. Who is this chief priest? Where is he from? What kind of family was he raised in? What does he value? What are his greatest fears, biggest insecurities? Why exactly is he acting the way he is? Every time we interact with another human being, we're interacting with years and years of history because every behavior has a backstory. So it's easy to lump all the people Jesus is about to interact with into the category of bad, but I think that's doing this story a disservice. Think about the moment John tries to stop another group casting out demons in Jesus' name. What does Jesus say? Oh yeah, stop them, that's so wrong. No, of course not. He says those who are not against us are for us. Don't be so quick to create good-bad categories. Those who are moving the ball down the field aren't the problem. Or Paul in Philippians 1 saying, what do I care about bad motives? If Christ is being preached, that's a win in my book. Look, there's a reason why we are still talking about these debates 2,000 years later, and it's not because Jesus wins them, although I think he clearly does, it's because there is a deeper magic to all of this. Jesus is up to something. He is teaching us something bigger. And I know it may be hard to see that right now, but that's because this day is just getting started. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. To find out more about the project, visit our website, storiesinscripture.com, follow us on Instagram at storiesinscripture, or on Twitter at SIS Project, and please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes.